Blog Talk Radio. And we're waiting on the intro. Here we go. Welcome to Peach State Pandemonium, a production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network, where we take you down memory lane for a look at professional wrestling the way it used to be, with conversations from those who paved the way. And now, the GWH Radio Network presents Peach State Pandemonium. Good evening, and welcome to Peach State Pandemonium for Thursday, June 23rd, is it? Yeah, I guess it is. June 23rd. 2016. This is Michael Norris along with Bobby Simmons and Jay West at this point. Has Jerry joined and us yet? Jerry's just joined us. Uh, when I put Jerry okay, on, it knocked Jerry Bobby off. Here. I'm here. Okay. You're all here now. All right. Well, you know, guys, I don't, I don't know what's going on. I'm uh, Jerry. I know you, you have somewhat been affected by this. Everybody's talking about terrorism and terror. I'm, I'm more worried about the alligators and the sharks than I am anything else. Oh God! Oh God! Uh, did y'all hear about that? That one down there on Tybee Island? Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a mess. It was, it was the most unbelievable thing you've ever seen. Somebody clue. Clue me in. I missed it. All right, I got a call. This was last Friday. I got a. I get there. I get there early, and I'm supposed to get. That's just me. I'm always early, but I I just finished eating breakfast, and I got a call about seven twenty. We need you to go down to the pier. So there's a alligator out there. Mm. I'm going. Oh, that's cute. So I go running down there, and I got a buddy of mine who runs the pier. He He's got a golf cart. He took me on out on the pier a little bit, and there it went right under the pier. So I called the fire department. I told them to bring a boat down there. They, they brought a boat, and here we go. And he's going south off the beach about 30 or 40 yards. Now the people is gathering, and it just went on out. All three TV stations showed up, and this and this and this. And So there's a guy down here. His name's Trapper Jack. He's He's trapped alligators all his life. They called him, and uh, they told me to call him, and he wanted a heads up what he was doing. I told him what he was doing. He said, okay. He said, I'm on the way. I said, well, just come to a certain spot, drive out on the beach in your truck, and we'll go from there. And this alligator stayed on top of the water, you know, the whole time. As soon as he got that guy's truck, he went under. Like he knew he was there. You know, it's like you take your car to the shop. It's making this noise, and you take it there, and then don't do it, but. <laughs> Anyhow, he uh, he said, okay, and he, and he the gator comes back up. He said, that's a seven-footer. Wow. So now we got to keep the people out of the water and this and this. So he gets a rod and reel out. I said, what's he up to? He he put a treble, treble hook on there. He's going to hook you. So everybody that comes up, including the lifeguards, no, they're telling this man how to catch alligator, how to catch his mm-hmm. alligator. He well, you need to put a chicken on there. He said, nah, I don't need to put a chicken on there. They kept on. He said, I'll get him. I'll, everybody said something, I'll get him. So this went on for six hours till he could really get a good cast on him, and he, and he, and he finally got him in. And it was, yeah, I mean, it was just unbelievable. So, and I was sitting there on one of the uh, four-wheelers with the, the fire department. brought their side, and I'm sitting on the one that had the boat. This joker walked up. He said, oh, what's going on? I said, man, there's an alligator out there. Oh, where is he? I said, straight out there. I said, there's a seven-foot alligator out there. 
the next words out of his mouth. Can I go swimming? Sure. Go ahead. Just, that's right. Yeah. Go, go. Get on out there. But, but I, I sit there and shook my head for six hours. Everybody telling this man who, that's what he, that's what he does. Gets it's all those people who watch swamp people and see their experts. The, well, they yeah, watch. I, 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 it was, oh, and they said it made the news everywhere. Yeah, the the final was. result was somebody did, I guess, maybe the guy they called him, they cut his head off? No. Uh-uh. But let me, tell you, let me tell you, when he got there that morning, he had trapped two small ones, and he had, the back of, he had them in the back of his truck in a cage and take, had their mouth taped up and all. So one of the, the girl cops, they got it out, and the, the sister fire chief, they had the picture made with them. So now it it spread that there was three alligators in the water. Mm. He broke two, you know. I mean, it, it, you know how people do. You know, ten people can see a wreck, and you get ten different versions. Right. This guy able to know. capture this seven-foot alligator by himself, Jerry? Yes, by himself. He got, when he pulled it in, it, it, it you would just think he'd have pulled in a, a fish. Ask him, I said, because we have that coyote down there. He, he'd come down there to see about it. He wanted, he was going to use live traps, and the chief wouldn't let him do that, you know, because somebody's had a kid to walk into a trap. Like, you know, we just didn't do that. But anyhow, uh, yeah, he got him, and I said, I asked him, I said, how are you going to do this? He said, I'm going to pull him up once I get him on the beach, and I'm going to get this guy with me to keep tension on that line, and I'm going to go behind him with him you know, like a rod and just push his, you know, his mouth down and then sit on him and they taped him up. And that was it. I mean, you would have just thought he was, you know, just pulling the fish in. <laughs> but anyhow, they, they said, oh, is this the first time? I said, no. I said, since I've been here, I've I've got two by myself. I got one on the beach. He was a four-footer, and then I got another one about, about the same size in somebody's yard, so. But I read in the paper, they had an article on it Friday. They said there's 200,000 alligators in the state of Georgia. Wow. And he, he, and I read he, this morning, there's a, there was a shark um, swim up to within two feet of the shore, Pensacola Beach, yesterday. Well, I, listen, those people go out there in that water. I, you couldn't throw me in that water. <laughs> it, they don't think the shark's out there. They actually believe that. And the people that fish off the beach, they catch little sharks all the time, so that means to tell me there's some big ones out there. Oh, yeah. And then they catch them. They're not supposed to shark fish off that beach, but they do. On on, on the north end, I've seen guys pulling six-footers. Six-foot shark tear you up. Mm. Absolutely. Well, that's, that's, uh, they ain't going to get me unless they knock on the door. <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. Going after that's crazy. People laugh at me because I tell them I'm not going in the ocean. I'm not going uh, in it either. No, sir. We got we got a guy already this year that got hit with a stingray in the hand. Oh. The worst I ever had was a jellyfish, and that was bad enough for me. Yeah, they'll tear you up. So that was last Friday. Hmm. Six hours to get in. 
He said, he, the, yeah, all, those, the, all those experts who yes. watch uh, Swamp People every Tuesday night on, on yes, the History exactly. Channel, and they know how to how to catch an alligator. And he he, he finally told me, he said, you know, the guy that was going to get him, he said, you know that alligator, he don't care nothing about no time. But he said, I will get him. And he finally got him. I'm glad he got him. I cannot imagine. But, you know, they, they, we had an 83-year-old woman. This was, this happened since I was here. She went out in her yard. There's a place, it's, it's called The Landings. It's a very ritzy place. Well, uh, alligator killed her in her yard. It's full of alligators out there. <laughs> I wouldn't live in no place like that. I'm telling you, I, I wouldn't live in a place like that. Well, the, the neighborhood my aunt and uncle live in in Luke's, Florida, which is right outside of Tampa, they've got a pond off the back of their condo. It's got an alligator in it, and they feed it. And they feed it. Well, he going See, uh, I saw a guy. I saw a guy nope. at Disney the other day, or, or not. A, he wasn't for Disney. He was a a game warden or something down there in Florida, and he said people feed those alligators. He said, and the alligators lose their fear of humans. Yes. He said they lose their fear of 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 things they don't understand. He said so they just know it's a food source and they get closer and closer, and then they okay. just do what's there natural. Well, <laughs> take your hand along with the food. Yeah, and an alligator, and I read this somewhere. They say an alligator for the first 40 yards is as fast as a racehorse. They live quick, I'll tell you that. Well, Don Carson Don Carson, and John Gibbs, which was a friend of Smitty's, decided they was going to get a baby alligator one time at the Okefenokee. It was just laying up on the sand beside the water. And they started walking down toward it. And Mama was about three foot out and just raised up. <laughs> and when that she did, you know, Don Carson was all legs anyway. But they was in motion coming back up that sandy hill. And that little old baby alligator just still laying there. Well, if you've ever heard one croak and growl or whatever it is it's considered that they do, You'll never forget it. I, I went, my uncle and I used to go fishing up in the swamps, Alabama River, off of uh, what is now, if you're going into Mobile on 65, what is what is now called the Dolly Parton Bridge, right in that area there. We used to fish before any of that was built. And we were up in there and, and high weeds and everything, and, and we're sitting there, and I'm hearing this, and he just politely reached over and, cranked the motor up, and I said, where are we going? He said, you hear that noise? And I said, yeah. He said, that means we're near an alligator nest, and Mama's not happy, so we're leaving. <laughs> they're vicious, man. They are, and like Bobby said, they're quick, man. They're, they're quick. Oh, yeah. And I've never grabbed one, but I hear they're unbelievably strong, too. Well, I mean, you know cool. more about that than I do, Jerry, but that's just. That full footer I got. I went down there with a pole that's got a loop on it, you know. Mm-hmm. And another cop was with me, and I, we said, I don't see no alligators. And there was some water, like a washout spot. And I said, there he is right there. So I said, you go get in front of him, and I'm going to come behind him with that loop, you know, and get him on his mouth. And I got him, and I'm telling you, he, he soaked me in that puddle of water. 
he, he was just a full footer. He was strong as he want to be. I'm telling you. He go into a roll. That's exactly what he did. Yeah, that's what they do. That's how that's how they drown whatever they catch. They go into what's called a death spiral. That's and what that scared me about they, that they, little boy the other day down at Disney. I, yeah. That's exactly what I was afraid of happened. Yep. And usually they won't eat anything uh, right away if it's anything of any size, like a large animal or something. They'll take it. They'll they'll do go into that death spiral and drown them. And then they usually got some little nest somewhere, either up under a, a log or a, you know, a stem of trees or something. And they'll go stuff it down up under there, and they'll they'll feed on it for several days. That's what he's done with that kid. He's gone back. Yep. That's a horrible thing. That's just. Uh, that's yep. I'm telling you, nature, nature like that, you 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 can't fool with those animals, man. Uh, no. Nope. Like, I'll go out there and get him. Go ahead. Whisper <laughs> him, wait on. <laughs> Idiots. He's on down there, Tuffy Truesdale. That one ain't Another dead. Another thing that guy, said that, uh, that guy said last week, that game warden or whatever he was, he said people are so stupid down in Florida, he said they will walk out in about two or three foot of water. They'll see one out, maybe it's 10, 12 feet out. They'll walk out in a couple of feet of water where they can take a selfie with it. Yeah, it's I, like I, I was just, watching uh, a YouTube video. A friend of mine posted on there that there was – this was a couple of weeks before the little boy that got killed in Disney, but there was a um, 10, 12 footer. Might've even been bigger than that, by the way it looked walking across a golf course in somewhere in Florida, South Florida. I saw that thing. And I he was just, it. he was just moseying along. And this guy filming it told his friends, run up there and get next to it. So I can, get, I can get some perspective as to how big it is. <laughs> right. He looked like an automobile going across there. I saw it. Yeah, he did. Hmm. What a mess. Well, it is a mess. But, uh, Spencer, my my daughter Spencer was showing me a, uh, there's a, a website you can go on to that will actually show you in live time where sharks are all over the world. Well, and we have one. Swarms we, have, uh, we have one. Her name's Mary Lou. She cruises out there. She's uh, she weighs. Uh, I forgot what she weighed. Like eighteen hundred pounds. Mm. And I forgot how long she she cruises out there. You think I'm going in that water? <laughs> what kind of shark so. is it? Do you know? It's a great white. Really? Ooh, it's a, yeah, it's a great. There's two of them. They cruise the east coast and they 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 they, they come off the shore, tidy. They go over to Hilton Head. People say, okay, oh, there, there's no great white sharks around here. Really? They can't read. They don't know they're not supposed to be here. Yes, exactly. They follow they follow food and, and the warmth and, and temperature of the water. They don't they don't read no road maps. They 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 <laughs> they, they get where they want. Hmm. People, people are so naive about about animals like that. You you just you just can't imagine the strength of something like that. Even at a four footer, they yep. got it. When I grabbed, when I finally got it, he said, "Don't drop that pole! Don't drop that pole!" Then we put him in the put him in a, my van and we taped his mouth up. Now I got to let him go. So I only got another guy that 
He ain't scared of nothing. I said, I called him. I said, hey, man, I got an alligator. So come get me. We, we, we'll turn him loose. But anything over six feet, they can't they can't relocate him. So he, this guy had to euthanize this one, and he took the hide and the meat and all, you know. Maybe that's what I, where I read that they they were talking about his head was going to be on somebody's wall. I think they were just making a joke out of it, but. Well, alligator meat is uh, is is very good. I mean, I, I used to watch the, the show Swamp People, and and uh, those guys make a make a li- quite a living doing that. But it's it's well, hard work thing. and it's dangerous work. It's very dangerous. That's that's one job I don't want. Well, I just you know six footer. I'm not even a fool with a six footer. I, we we always call this guy. He'll come get him, but. He's been down there before. He got a seven-footer down there in a pond on the island down there. That's where I went down there. But uh, anything over like four feet, I'm not going to fool with it. I mean, I'm not, you know. Well, big as alligators are, the, the crocodiles are even bigger, especially the ones that grow in, in Egypt in the Nile River. They grow up 18, 19 feet. I ain't going over there mess with them either. I'm not either. <laughs> Well, anyway, welcome to Peace State Pandemonium, sponsored by go. the National Geographic Channel. <laughs> I was I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and just uh, with my sense of humor, I got in trouble. I got involved with an Indian on the warpath one time, and that was enough for me. Well, thank you. Lorenzo, per- Lorenzo Perini and Jerry Briscoe, and Perini called a crisscross, and when Briscoe dropped down, Perini pounced on him. And when he pounced on him, me not being no smarter than I am, I dropped down right in Briscoe's face and went two points. And uh, I I saw firsthand what an Indian can do when he goes on a warpath. <laughs> <laughs> that was enough for me. I, I, that's that's as close to an alligator as I want to get. <sighs> I saw on Jerry's Facebook page today he posted he got uh, some sort of award from the uh, Choctaw Nation. He went into their Hall of Fame or something, I think. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. Well deserved. I wish Vince had let him do our show, but the last time I asked him, he said that that, that as long as they were working for Vince, he, he'd love to do it, but uh, he can't. So, uh, But uh, I am trying to line up uh, somebody. Uh, I mentioned uh, a couple of books that, that I've been reading uh or I finished one, and I'm about to finish the other one by an author by the name of Tim 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 Hornbaker. Excuse me. Um, I touched base with him this week, and he is very interested in doing the show. So hopefully, here in a couple of weeks, I'm gonna get Tim on with us. Let me tell you, if for me having what little bit of time I spent in the business, these two books are the most fascinating books I've ever read about the wrestling business. And uh, I, I encourage anybody that is a wrestling fan or, or is a former or current wrestler to read these two books. One of them is called, uh, Tim's first book, it's called uh, The National Wrestling Alliance, uh, The Untold Story of the Monopoly that that Strangled the, uh, the uh, Professional Wrestling World. And then the second one is called uh, Capital... Um, revolution and it's about the growth of the McMahon family and, and leading up to the uh, expansion of uh, you know when when the WWF went uh, 
national. Luckily, he he cuts it off at 84 when when uh, the end of Backlund's uh, reign there, and and when it started to expand, he doesn't go into you know all of McMahon Jr.'s dealings, but. If you think angles and programs and feuds and everything that you see on television and in the arenas back in back in our day were interesting, the real stuff that went on between the promoters and some of the backroom stuff and backstabbings and lawsuits and, and you know government investigations, this stuff is just it's fascinating to me. About I'm all sure the players. Bob, I'm and, sure Bobby, you would. Bobby, you'd have a pretty good understanding of uh, some of the backroom stuff, right? Well, depending on what you're talking about, uh, a lot of that, a lot of that stuff nobody knew about except the board of directors. Uh, you know, I never, I never one time. Well, I take that back. Now I was, I was in a board of directors meeting one time for about ten minutes, but they didn't discuss anything while I was in there. Uh, but. Uh, you know, the National Wrestling Alliance has been under fire since it was formed. Sure. Yep. It was incorporated in Iowa, and it's been under fire ever since, you know. Uh, but, you know, that, you know, that was kind of idiotic to try to do. Look, you got the NFL, uh, Major League Baseball. I mean, what was the difference? There should have been none. The only difference, The only difference in the two is, Major League Baseball and NFL have no competition. Anybody that anybody that owned the ring could say, "I'm in the wrestling business, and I can't get talent because they got a ball sewed up." And then you got basis for a lawsuit because they they claimed that the NWA was a monopoly. Right. Well, then right. what it was what it was though the comeback on that would be you don't have enough money to pay them to come to work for you. Well, you know you. you I mean that's. The whole the whole thing was it was supposed to be an association of promoters that worked together for the betterment of the sport or the business, and and you know yes promoters swapped talent yes people went from place to place but you're exactly right they went because there was the possibility of making money and most of these these small independent guys they could not pay the guys you know they couldn't draw and and it just you know. It's, well, the uh, thing about that is, oh, Bobby, in reading, reading, uh, especially the National Wrestling Alliance book, it was not only small timers; it was major uh, promoters who would they would do something to anger another one, and then all of a sudden, that you know, they were cut off. Well, you, know, you got a guy like Toots Montz, who was, you know, at the very beginning when you know with with Lewis, Strangler Lewis. And he was in New York, and all of a sudden he got angry because he was friends with Jack Pfeffer, and Eddie Quinn didn't like that, and so he got, you know, this promoter to join on his side, and they got in Sam Muchnick's here. Next thing you know, Tuzman couldn't get any any talent in New York, or some oh. other guys, you know, expanding in there and, and running opposition to it, and the NWA is supporting him and not sending their champion to him, and you know, it's 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 some fascinating stuff. Yeah, it was all, it really you is. know, and there again, too, it's all politics. Right. Exactly. And there, I mean, that's, that's it's all it politics. And there were there was no protection. There was no contract, per se, to no. protect the guy. Right. He was only as, you know, good as his last match, more or less. Uh, he had right. to toe the line. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was always a chance, uh, even going to one of the other major organizations, uh, that he might be blackballed unless it was a, a, a planned deal. 
But, uh, you know, I, I think possibly being a work had something to do with it. Everything was closed, you know, uh, unlike football and baseball where, where things just weren't going to be talked about. And uh, I think that was, that was, you know, it wasn't going to be spoken of as much, but I also think that was part of the deal that, that uh, set wrestling apart from uh, the other sports as to how they, how they worked uh, as, as an organization. Well, one, let only, me say this. Only, you know, you, may, you use the word blackball. That was something that was thrown around for years and years and years, too, was, was oh, well, we're going to blackball. We're going to blackball. We're going to not, never, nobody's ever going to use you again. You know, there used to be, Nick Gullis was notorious for, oh, for yeah, the blackball exactly. list. He would mail out. But I'm going to tell you something. Jerry Oates could have shot Ray Dunkel with a twenty two <laughs> pistol in the, in the head in the middle of the ring in Atlanta on Friday night. And, oh, well, we're going to blackball Jerry Oates. He's killed a promoter. I got news for you. If Eddie Graham thought he could have drawn money by saying Jerry Oates, the man who shot Ray Gunkel, will be here next Tuesday night, he'd have absolutely. been in Tampa in the main event next Tuesday. You're absolutely right. There was no blackball. This promoter going to use you if you make money, will you? Well, I, I think all the guys that – I think Tony Rollins went to work for uh, not only Ann, but work for uh, Eddie Einhorn, Ernie Ladd. You know, he worked. Ivan Koloff, guys like that. But they were booked, you know. Thunderbolt was a, um, you know, a main guy that came under that. You know, so many times in Georgia he was going to be blackballed when he was going to start his own promotion. And, you know, he'd go back and forth. And and once the, uh, uh, you know, the heat went down a little bit, he'd be back. Yeah, that was, that was, I never saw anybody that was blackballed that I know of. I mean, their name could have come up, but like Bobby said, I could have killed somebody if I could draw money by doing that somewhere else. They'd use you. So, well, I, I think I there was the fear. I think there was the fear of that. You know, guys thought they could be blackballed and their career could be over with. Uh, right. I think that was legit. Well. The only out of and you touch base on it, that the the wrestlers were really at the mercy of the promoters. The only one that ever had any power or control over and could pretty much do what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it and how he wanted to do it was Thiz. Yep. Because his reputation was so he could go anywhere. If the NWA didn't like him, he could go to to Australia or Japan or or Europe and make money there. He wasn't relying on these people. I mean, in fact, in the last two times he had the world championship, he didn't even want it. But they, he was doing Sam Muchnick a favor because, you know, after getting talked into putting the belt on Buddy Rogers because he was going to be such a big draw, Vince McMahon sewed him up in the Northeast, and that's uh, other than going to places like Atlanta, Miami, and Houston, he never went anywhere else. You know, you never see him in Mobile, Alabama, or Panama City, or, or, you know, even you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma, or any place like that, because he just, you know, he wasn't going to be there. So that's why they went back to Fez and said, "Can you please come take the belt off of him?" That's, uh, you know, it's amazing to think that you would have that much power in in the professional wrestling business. Uh, and uh, that, that you know, everything I've read is just exactly like you've laid it out there, Mike. 
Well, he was his own man because there was nobody else like him. Well, anyway, nobody had the no, nobody had the credibility in the sport that he had when they were trying to push it as a legitimate sport. No, not really, because the, the ones that that were, you know, didn't have the reputation. I mean, Dick Hutton was probably every bit as good a wrestler that, as Fez was, but he just he couldn't draw flies as the NWA champion. But uh, anyway, we'll, hopefully we'll get Tim on with us in a couple of weeks, and uh, we'll go into into more depth of that because he has done uh, the, the amount of research and everything he's he's done. It's, it had to have been years worth of research, and it, you know I've always wanted to see a book done about the Welch family, and uh, that would be the person that would do it that could if he had the contacts. But uh, you know. And another one that needs to be written about is Jim Barnett, you know, because of all the different places. And he touches on all the different places that Barnett worked. But uh, but they really know, need to go into – somebody needs to write a book and go into in-depth about all the, the success he had, not only in – he started out as Fred Kohler's, uh, you know, assistant in Chicago. And, of course, he and Johnny Doyle owned uh, – Indianapolis and Detroit at one time. Then they had Australia, and then Barnett came here and had uh, Georgia and, and then worked for Vince and worked all over the place. But, uh, but you know, how much of that stuff is, is you know, he could, he could locate as far as, you know, actual research and not go into just innuendo about Barnett or... or how much there's nobody left of the of the Welch family, and even if they were still alive, they wouldn't talk about it. I doubt Ron and Robert or Jack and and Roy Lee would even open up about it, and especially without getting paid, they won't. So, um, which is a shame because that was a that that was six generation family that you know sure should have should have uh, you know a lot more people should know about, but. Anyway, tonight we're going to talk about gimmick matches. Um, Jerry, in your career, did you do any kind of gimmick matches, like cage matches or strap matches or anything like that? I was, yeah, cage matches, uh, chain matches. Uh, the goofiest stuff we ever did that I ever did, and so did a lot of other guys, and I know Bobby was involved in it, was a double ring battle royal. I thought that was a joke. It was all one time, and that's it. Yeah, that's usually why they only did them once a year. <clears throat> and they were probably the most dangerous thing we did because it don't matter how many guys you put in one, there was always one idiot. <laughs> there was always an idiot. Oh, there's always one, and you know, there's one in every crowd that would do something stupid, you know, and, and take a chance on getting somebody hurt. I can't imagine you in a chain match. Who'd you have a chain match with? Carl Cox? No, uh, Ed Wyskowski. Oh, easy Ed. <laughs> what was the what, what was the build up that led to that match? And was that the blow off match, Jerry? Yes. Yep. You know, and it, and it was done right. You know, you, you build it up. You you go from singles, then into tags, and then. 
you run through that and then, you know, <clears throat> winds up with the two of you again and you can't settle it. And if it's done right, you know, it, 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 it's a good thing. But that's something you can't do all the time either, you know. It was... And then cage matches, you know, those were, they built up right and you do them right, but, you know, it means something. But I know you never had them here before. Did you ever get in the cage, Jerry, and, and things just didn't go like they were supposed to go? Not not the ones I was involved in. You know, uh, you'd always say, you know, Somebody try to climb out of it and stuff like that. Uh, you know, of course now, now these days they they're jumping off the top of cages and stuff. Yeah, and going through the top of. You know, the first that. cage match I ever seen in Atlanta. I remember, and I don't even remember who it was, but I remember I'm a kid going to the matches, and uh, all of a sudden they build up, and now they're going to have a cage. First time I ever, uh, you know, the first the first bloody match, really gory bloody match I ever saw, was Mario Galento and Freddie Blassie. And they their match was barbed wire surrounding the ring. And they ran three strands of barbed wire outside the poles, even with the ropes. And I can remember that. That was kind of... But I remember the first cage match. And I don't know how it was in Columbus, Jerry, but the first cage match I ever saw, the cage consisted of two-by-twos and chicken wire. Mm-hmm. And it tied, yeah. it tied to the ring. Tied it off on the corners to the post. Well, I'll, I'll tell you two matches I wouldn't have done. I wouldn't have done a barbed wire deal, and I wouldn't have done those thumbtacks. I'll tell you that right now. No. no, no. <laughs> well, that's uh, part of what they call that extreme wrestling now, you know, where those guys really, you know, as they did in the movie The Wrestler, were, where just anything goes. That's. We did a deal in Atlanta with Abdullah and the Sheik in a cage. And they had been in a cage and didn't, so they come back, they're trying to come back with something else. And when you had those two in a match, you know, it, I mean, you basically got five minutes and then they fight all through the stands and then they go to the dressing room, that's it. It was the same thing every time. So they finally have a cage match, and I forget what happened, they did something, but they come back again, but this time the cage, they say, is going to have barbed wire. And we had a great, we had a cage in Atlanta that was a chain link fence, and, uh, and it was tied off to the ring, but it was tied off with chains so that it was actually, it actually looked like a legitimate cage. It was about, I don't know, eight, ten feet tall. And uh, during the week that week before the matches, me and me and the guy Red that worked at the office and Randy, we had to string barbed wire. We X'd it. We went from the top of the cage to the middle of the cage to the top of the other end, and then we went from the bottom to the middle to the bottom. So there was like three X's on each side of that thing with barbed wire. And I'm telling you, we were all bloody and messed up putting it on the cage, you know. And I was praying that I didn't have to referee it. <laughs> because with them two in the ring, you just never knew. And uh, it was just, uh, I fortunately didn't draw that one. And uh, uh, But, yeah, it, that was. And, you know, another thing, too, we. We had to put the cage up during intermission for the main event. Toting that thing through the crowd at the Omni to get it to the ring. It's not like today where, where Vince has got the thing suspended over the ring and he just lowers it down and it encapsulates, encapsulates the ring. 
We had to tote it through the crowd. Could you imagine one guy tripping and that barbed wire falling on a whole section of people? No, how, how dangerous a thing was that to do? Oh yeah, I mean it was it was you know, needless to say it was a scary time. But yeah, it was a. Uh, uh, I mean, there that, that was a couple times there was some crazy stuff. But yeah, we've come a long way from the from the chicken wire and the and the two by two frames. I was gonna say in in Mobile. The first cage match they ever had in Mobile was uh, was between uh, the Fields brothers, Don and Bobby, and their opponents were either I think it was either the Corsicans or the uh, the Allen Don Green, and this was like 1960. And basically, they did the same thing. They just took chicken wire and and wrapped it around the ring outside the ropes and that's that's it only went as high as the ropes uh and then they didn't have another one like that for or if they did you know in the 60s that's what they would have that's the way they did it the first true cage match they had was in 1970 and it was between bob kelly and and mike boyette and the loser was supposed to get their hair cut which as Boyette said, that's not really fair because Kelly's already going bald anyway, so I'm not winning anything. But anyway, to generate interest, Kelly, they opened up the um, – it was, it was they had it at Municipal Auditorium in Mobile, and they opened the doors earlier than they normally do because Kelly had been saying on television, I'm going to build the cage myself. And sure enough, he did. He built that cage. He spent – Two and a half hours building that cage himself, and all the fans, you know, showed up to to watch him, and it drew it drew a heck of a house him doing that. And then uh, they uh, set the cage up. Now it didn't have a top on it; and it was only about maybe two feet beyond, you know, higher than the ropes, where you could still get out of it if you needed to. And uh, Boyette lost, and and Kelly cut his hair and his beard, and then he left town for a while, and then came back as a baby face but uh that was the first cage match they had in mobile after several years and an actual true cage match but i thought that was pretty smart of kelly doing that telling well, fans you, know, uh, just, you come out there and watch me build this cage i'm gonna make sure he can't leave the ring well a cage is only i mean you know a cage is uh it's, it's the perception it gives more so than being an actual cage right. i remember working working for ann uh steinborn built a cage they had a cage match in Columbus on a Monday night, and uh, I, I assumed we were going to have to take the little old cage we had there in Atlanta down there, and they told us, they said, no, they said, Dick is, Dick's building a cage, or he's having a cage built. So we went down, I, I went down that Monday night for whatever reason, I don't remember why I went, but it was before I started refereeing, but I went down there, and and Dick's ring in Columbus was uh, was an 18 by 18 square he built the cage 22 by 22 and it sat on the floor uh it was chain link and it was you you put it together and then as it hooked in the corner you drop you dropped a, sort of like a hanging a door you dropped a pin through the through where the where the where the cages came together and it formed a square you know around the ring it I mean it was four foot bigger than the, than, the, than the ring problem was it was only about nine feet tall, and the top rope of the ring was about, I don't know, maybe 12 feet off the floor. 
So the cage did not extend above the ring. It was below the top of the ring. And anybody could tell that it was sitting anywhere other than on the floor. You could have just, I mean, the cage was not going to keep anybody in. It didn't want to be there. So you tell him, in other words, he's not an architect. Well, <laughs> evidently not in that not in that case. I, I that's the cage I wound up cutting down and mounting it on the on the side of the ring where it was taller than the uh, taller than the ropes. But yeah, it, it it was a. I love the way it was set up and I love the way it did. I mean, it was a neat setup as far as putting it together and the fact that it was bigger than the ring was good. If it had been another six eight feet tall, it'd have had something. But I don't know how you would have transported it. Well, in addition to the idea that it was supposed to keep your opponent from leaving the ring, it was also supposed to keep anyone from coming in and offering assistance. Right, right. And so you had to have somebody in the corner where the door was or whatever uh, in order to protect the thing. And uh, we know how those somebody like Bobby sitting outside and gives that that mark the the key to the cage to get in there and beat up poor Jody. (laughs) Yeah, if I knowed he was going to hit me in the chest with that elbow, I'd have opened the door for him. Let me, let me give you another interesting cage story. When George Scott was here booking, he decided he didn't like the cage we had, which was the one the chain linked it went up on it. So Snake Brown and some of y'all, so I don't know if y'all, some of y'all, I guess, knew Snake. I know the Snake. Snake, oh, Snake yeah. worked for a welding shop over in Carrollton. That was his full-time job, and he told George he would build a cage. And he'd have it at the Omni Sunday night for us to use. Well, I was working in the office, and I told Charlie McGowan, I said, I want you to go to the warehouse or wherever the thing was. I can't even remember. I said, you go get our cage, and you bring it to the Omni. And, of course, Charlie said, no, I don't want to. We're going to snakes bringing the cage. We don't need ours. I said, look, go get ours and bring it. Stand it up in the back somewhere just in case. Well, snake brought a cage. And it was huge. It was, it was. I don't know, it was probably, you know, it was 12, 15 feet tall. He made that thing out of, out of a steel tubing. And the fence was, I don't know how, I'm not a fence person, so I can't tell you what it was. It was, uh, the fence was those, you know, maybe look like a, a two-inch by four-inch square next to each other, and they went from top to bottom. But it was steel wire. Each side of this cage probably weighed eight, nine hundred pounds. <laughs> now, and I went back there and looked at it, and it was an impressive looking thing. How did and he get it in? Well, I, somebody, they brought it in the. I don't know how they delivered it, but it was, you know, standing up against the wall there in the back. I went back there and looked at it, and I, and I thought, well, that, that really looks nice. And Snake was proud of it. I said, explain to me how we're going to get that thing through the crowd. And put it together. How many people is it going to take to tote it? I said, it's so tall you can't balance it, so you can't even drag it. I said, because if it over if, if it over tilts or overcompensates, I said, it's going to fall and it's going to kill some people. Kill a whole section of ringside. You're not kidding. It was the darnest thing you ever seen. <laughs> we, we, they wound, we wound up, I'm, I forget what the thing cost. We had to pay for it, but we never used it. I never saw it again after that first time I laid eyes on it. I don't know what they did with it or where they took it or how they got it out of there. But it was a it was the darndest thing you'd ever seen, man. It was a <clears throat> it, I mean it, it did it looked good, but but buddy you could have, it would have took a forklift and three or four forklift operators to get it up there. 
and you know one of the one of the uh, the, the guaranteed spots in a cage match is taking your opponent and ramming his head into the to the chain link. I can just see that one side falling over and killing forty two people at ringside, <laughs> like like Jerry said. <laughs> I was always worried, you know, as as secure, and and I and I'm not I'm not I'm not bragging. I'm not, but I was so conscientious about putting that thing together and making sure it was it was secure and that it was going to stay there, you know. But as as as, as no matter how you did it, I was always worried about that because. Anything if something can go breaks, wrong. you got no control over it. Anything can go wrong. And really, you start thinking about it. It's really a dangerous situation. Yes, it is. I give Vince credit for what he does for his whatever his cage is. The way he's got it put together and the way he lowers it and sets it over the ring oh, it's and it's awesome, one complete man. unit, that's the safest way I've ever seen it done. It's well, awesome. he's got the money to do it. Yeah, he does. It's uh did George ever have the manager's cage? Oh yeah. He stuck a manager in in this little cage, and he was either at ringside or sometimes they they suspended up over the oh, ring. We'd hang up, we'd hang him from the ceiling. That's Dandy Jack. <laughs> we had a Renesto came up with the idea to do that on a Friday morning. He called Eddie Smith. Eddie was a Eddie, Eddie was a master of anything he he wanted to do. Eddie could build anything. He was one of the smartest. He could take a watch apart and put it together. But Eddie had one speed, and that was slow. That was his speed. He went, you know, he had to get a chew of tobacco. He had to walk around, and look at it for an hour or two before he did anything to it. They called him and told him what they wanted. So that Friday night, while we're all toward to toil working. He's at the sports arena locked in by himself, and he spent all night long building that manager's cage we had. And uh, he, when he, we got the TV the next morning, Eddie shows up with his pickup truck. He unloads that thing. It was a four-by-four four sheet of plywood with a, that was sitting inside a metal frame. And on that metal frame, it had two bolts that stuck up on each side. You had four side rails that slid over those bolts, and he had them lettered A to A, B to B, C to C, D to D. They sat down. You took a ratchet, and you tightened the bolt down with a washer. And then the top sat right on top, and you run eight bolts through it, two on each side. You bolt, you ratcheted it down, and you was all set. You could put it together in ten minutes, take it apart in ten minutes. And he built it in one night. Eddie was a master of that stuff. He always was unreal. Unreal. Back to the chain match you had with uh, Wiskowski, Jerry, was that the kind where you had to drag him around the ring and touch all four corners? No, we didn't do that. I know that's how they did Indian strap matches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ed was too big to drag around. <laughs> I had got to have to get a hand truck to get him around. Ed, what is that? He's big. Good worker too. He's very what, good worker. About six, six three, six four, something like that. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. He's about six four. He's a good worker too. Very good. Very slow, methodical. Very good. Very good worker. Really enjoyed working with him. 
if you ever talk to him again, you two can reminisce about the McGuire twins because he had to work a match in Mobile. Him and he and uh, Duke Miller, Jerry Miller, as most people knew him, uh, worked a, a tag team match with with the McGuire twins. <laughs> Did you see that match? Oh yeah. That was that was a gimmick match in itself, right there, with those two. There was another know. gimmick match that came from the fertile mind of, of Bob Kelly, and, and uh, love him or not, Bob Kelly was a was a, was was a unique booker in some of the stuff he came up with. You guys know what a Puget stick is? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah you use it in the military. military. Like right. a like the bamboo thing. No, no, it's, it's a, a stick with big, big uh, pads on either end of it. Right. Even, no, some of them look like bo- some of them look like boxing uh, boxing gloves. Okay. I don't know what you're talking about. But Kelly, having been a former Marine, this was back when he and when Boyette was still a heel and they were feuding. Boyette was a former Marine, so Kelly challenged him to a Puget stick match. They had that in Pensacola. And those two beat each other silly with those Puget sticks. That's one I never heard of the, before. Yeah, that's the only the only place I ever knew they ever did it. I think that was the only time Kelly ever did it. He may have done it with one other person later on, but that's the only one. Now the 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 Welches love boxing matches, and they're a lot of times they're blow offs to a few. They they put boxing gloves on guys. I don't know if they if when Fuller had a part of the Georgia office if they did that here or not. Well, I saw yeah, the the Roberto Soto versus Billy Spears uh, uh feud that went on the first one, uh that was uh one of the matches they had was a boxing match. And uh you know, Spears would get something handed to him by somebody where he'd load the glove. And that was one of the bloodiest uh, nights I ever saw. That was at the sports arena. Mm. How was it bloody? How did they blade? Oh, uh, you know, I don't know, but they did. And uh, they they were, I don't know if somebody slipped it to them or what it was, because, you know, they went down hard. Uh, and because they also, yes, they also had a corner man. So that's how they bladed. You go yeah. down against the ring post. And you right. talk to your corner man, and guess what happens? Now, Bobby, it also they had Ted and, and uh, Wayne Cowan books about boxing matches too, didn't they? They yeah, they did every kind of match you can think of. Uh, but yeah, they had boxing matches. Neither one of them knew how to box, so it, they were interested. <laughs> I mean, they just beat the crap out of each other. I mean, that's just that's just a fact. They were young and they were they were they were getting a little bit of a push, and and they just they went out there and gave everything they had every night. I mean, they just I'm telling you, the, the, I, very seriously, the cops in Atlanta thought it was a shoot. They'd you, they'd see those two guys were, coming, buddy, and they'd start screaming and yelling. As young as they were in the business, and I, I don't know that I ever saw them do their thing because I was. You know, with other yeah, players. but but you know matches like that are hard to follow. No, you tell me about it. I'm telling you. See, that was one of those Ernesto things where he started them in like the opening match. You know, they just booked him. You know, and you think, oh, here's a guy. They're gonna go 15 minute draw. 
next thing you know, man, you got guys in the ring pulling them apart. And, I mean, it just went on and on and on. And finally, yeah, you're right. They, you you couldn't follow them. And, 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 and you, you know, it, that's why I admired Tom so much. You know, he took two green guys and he created that. Yep. That's how his mind worked. I have probably told you all this. I, I'm sure I have. We were in Savannah one night, and them two guys was going at each other, and they had a double knockout, and they cracked heads. And I'm looking at both of them, and I their eyes were open, and there wasn't nobody home. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm thinking, if somebody comes to here and doesn't realize or don't come to and don't realize what's going on and the other one's still working, I said, this is going to turn nasty. And I, I did a real slow count, and finally they kind of got the cobweb shook off and came back. But when the match was over that night, I went to the dressing room, and Calvin told me, he said, I was on my grandmother's farm. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you know, it was just, but, you know, they did this crap every night. But, you know, you, you, you're working so hard like that, anything can happen. Yes, just just one one iota of an inch off, you know, and you got a problem. I tell you, I'll just give you a couple of examples. Just I mean, I know this is this is not gimmick matches, but just some of the things they did. They they put them they had they had went through this. They, they're killing each other, so Tom booked them in a series of two out of three fall matches. We're gonna go two out of three falls. We're gonna see if we can settle this thing. So. And I, and, I, and I want to say, this might have been a dicky idea. I can't remember where it came from. But give the instructions. And uh, Wayne turned around and go to the corner. And when he did, Ted would follow him. I mean, just very quietly walk right behind him. I'd ring the bell, and when Wayne would turn around, Ted would small package him. Three seconds later, the first falls over. Just boom. People going crazy. Wayne's going crazy, and then the next fall, Wayne just eats him up, you know. And then they went wherever long they did, and however they ended, you know, did the thing. But little things that people didn't expect. Ted had a deal a couple of times he did where he'd go to the ring and he'd tell me or whoever's refereeing, we'd go out there and set a folding chair down at the edge of the ring and stand up to get in the ring in the folding chair. Ted would come out to get in the ring, and as he stepped in the chair, he'd kick it out from under him, and he'd take a bump and hurt his back. And he'd lay on the floor and sell his back. And eventually the referee would get down there and say, hey, you know, we don't know, we're not going to be able to continue. And Wayne's in the ring screaming, you know, we're going to do that, you know, we're going to do that. And I finally Ted says no, and he gets in the ring. Of course, now you got an injured baby face. you got a heel that's eating him up. And, and, you know, it just and then finally he starts fighting back and fighting back. And then you send 20 guys in to pull them apart. But, I mean, just they did all sorts of stuff like that. It was just it's people didn't like expect it gets over. I mean, I mean, just something that simple can make it. It just it, run out of the blue. You got one hurt. Yeah, and, and, and you know, and, and the thing is, when you first do it, everybody laughs at him. Everybody's laughing. They think it's funny, but then all of a sudden he don't get up. I mean, it was just I. I, I miss those days. It was so easy. That, it wasn't that sounds like a, That sounds like a dicky idea to me. It could have been. I mean, he, he could have had something to do with it. I don't know, but it was just a, just little things like that. I mean, it, it was. 
you know, and sometimes you can't. Some things happen out of the blue, and some things you don't prepare for. But, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was just uh, those were fun times. Well, the worst thing that ever happened to me was I come from Texas and come back home to Columbus, and I'm in a six man tag with a McGuire. <laughs> 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 did you know? Did, did you know? I guess y'all know. Y'all saw them. when the. If I was in the ring, both of them was in the ring. Oh yeah, they couldn't get out of the ropes. I was a bum puzzle. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> didn't y'all work with the Garvins? That's who we worked with. I was talking to Ronnie in uh, in Mobile, and Ronnie told me he was working with them somewhere, and he tied one of them in the corner with a rope. And he I said, that. "Who, whichever one he tied in the corner, lost his footing and was hanging. He was he was killing himself. He was dying." And he said, "Finally, they realized, and they went over and they got him untied." He said, "But that whichever one that was, he said, man, he he swore Ronnie Garvin tried to murder him." He had one of them tied in the corner. You ever heard of a guy named Haystacks Muldoon? He's an English guy, right? No, 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 no. He was, uh, he was, uh, some places he worked, he was called the, uh, um, Ozark Mountaineer. But he was basically a Pfeffer creation. He was a knockoff of Haystack Calhoun. Uh, but he was, he was in the Carolinas at one point, and, I don't know if it was a tag match or what it was, but he was somehow or another he was in the ring with Ole Anderson, and Ole did something similar to that to him, and uh, or pushed him out over and where he got his his head caught in the, the between the the top and middle rope and stuff like that, and he nearly nearly hung himself. Giant Haystacks is who I was thinking of, English wrestler. Yeah, yeah, he was he was many years later. Uh, well, was, when you talk when you talk about guy. gimmick matches, anybody know when the first uh, you know it was one man against another? Anybody know when the first tag team match took place? Tag well, team. I've heard so many different people take credit for it. Uh, I'm trying to think. Somebody in Texas claimed to have been the first one. It was either Ed McElmore or Moore Siegel claimed to have been to have staged the first tag team match. And then I've heard that uh, Herb, and, Herb and Roy Welch were the first ones to ever do it somewhere in, in the Tennessee area, so I don't know. Well, I, you know, I was doing a little uh, Internet uh, jockeying around based on what you said. And what I came up with was 1901 in San Francisco. Uh, they don't list any uh, competitors. But uh, that that was uh, given credit for the first time uh, that uh, it was more of a competition between just two teams rather than one competitor against another competitor. And, of course, as the 30s to the 50s came along, that's when tag team wrestling became more and more popular. And then, of course, the two out of three falls. But those were the early types of matches that you would think of as the earliest elements of matches that, were not just one man pitted against another for one fall. And yeah, we all remember the, the team end. matches were first. 
what they what they later called uh, they took the old thing that were team matches and then did a variation of tag team matches and called them Texas Tornado matches where all four guys were in the ring at the same time. Right. Now they used to do that in Atlanta back in the in the late sixties. I seen the Torres and the Bashans and the Torres and the and the, the, the Andersons, the Gene and Gene and uh Lars and Lars. Lars. You know, I seen I seen them do that thing here in Atlanta. I never liked those. Hard them to, kind of hard. like battle royals. You, if you fell down, somebody was going to step on you. Yeah, some guys don't really have to go down. Uh, speaking of yeah. tag team, you all remember the infamous women against uh, men tag team at the Omni uh, during one of the Thanksgiving matches. Yep. I actually saw that two months earlier uh, in Dothan. Joyce and, and uh, Judy worked against uh, Roy Lee Welch and, and uh, Reuben Gibson. So they actually they did that a couple months before they did it at the Omni. But yeah, that was uh, that. Well, they had something similar to that they had uh, Ma Bass wrestled J.C. Dykes in, in Mobile one time. That was the first. Mixed match I ever saw, and of course we always had mixed tag team matches, but that was the first man against woman match I ever saw. Right. Or you'd have a little person on a tag team with a regular size wrestler, and then uh, the same thing on the other team. Or if they really got fancy, they'd have one man, one woman, and a and a midget. <laughs> <laughs> They used to do those all the time in, in Mobile Territory when Lee would, Lee would have one of his festivals. Of course, you know, he'd, he'd call Moolah, and she'd try and book, you know, all of her women out at one time, and he'd only want two, but, you know, she wants to, him to book six or seven. That's why she, if you say it all over the place, they'd do a thing with her where she'd defend her title on a card, but her opponent would be the winner of a uh, – Six to eight woman battle royal. Mm-hmm. That way, she could book seven people out and, and make money off seven people rather than just two. She was smart. Yeah, the I same thing with the with the midgets, whether it was uh, 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 the guy out of Detroit, um, Britain, Gino Brito's uh, dad, or whether it was Lord Littlebrook. You know they would they would book you know um, I never saw a midget battle royal that's the one thing I never did see. They couldn't get them over the top rope. <laughs> <laughs> they put them over the second rope. <laughs> did, did you guys you ever, never you, you guys, never you never seen four or five of them staying in one hotel room in evidently. <laughs> <laughs> or riding in the car with Ding Silverstone. Duh, um, God. Did you guys ever see or participate in a uh, blindfold battle royal? I was in one of those. <laughs> could you could you see out of the blindfold, Jerry? Yes. <laughs> Wrestling is not real. Oh my God. The bumps were. 
Let me tell no, you. I, oh, the bumps were. I, I understand what you're saying. Uh, they did one of the. It wasn't a battle royal, but they did one at the Atlanta City Auditorium, and I don't know what the buildup was, but it was Wahoo against uh, uh, Tommy Rich, and they obviously had some words about something, and uh, it ended up being a, a, a hood, you know, a hood on each guy, and they supposedly couldn't see out of them. And they were, you know, feeling around the ring and and uh, touching the ropes, and and people basically got tired of watching these guys try to figure out how to, cup, you know, to uh, to to actually touch each other. It took a while. That's so hokey. That's so hokey, you know. That's yeah. It, was it one of the one of, like an executioner's hood, Jay? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They were just black. I saw, I saw a match between uh, Carl Cox and Murdoch, with with both of them wearing one of those. They were jet black, the ones we had, but they were so thin you could see through them. Oh yeah. So. Yeah, I think I think at the end of the match, I don't know, Bobby, if you remember seeing it or not. I think uh, some heel came into the ring, and when that happened, then obviously Wahoo and and uh, Tommy hugged, and uh, uh, you know everything was all forgiven. Yeah, I don't remember what the deal was. I- but I, you know, I don't remember the specific stipulations of uh, why they had the match, but. Obviously, they were short on, I don't know, uh, heels for that for that night or something because uh, that was uh, either the main event or the semifinal. Yeah, we did, uh, you know, we did uh, coal miners matches where you put a coal mine where you put a welding glove up on the on a on pole, pole in the corner about ten foot above, yeah. you know, ten foot tall, whatever it was. Um, God, what Indian strap matches, Texas death matches. Yep. Uh, you see a concentration match? A what? A concentration match. No. Excuse me. That was where it could be either a singles match or a tag team match, but the guys were tied in by rope around their wrist into a corner. And the first one that got himself untied could go beat up the other one while he was still tied in the corner. Oh, geez. Uh, and how was he just untied? So they'd both be tied in the corner. And then yeah. and then the first guy to untie himself, he, he didn't yeah. have his – he only had one hand tied? Right. Once he got himself untied, he could, he could go yeah. over and whip up on the other guy. Exactly. I refereed a Braille match one time. A Braille match? Stan Hansen? No, Armstrong and Tom Ernesto against each other. (laughs) (laughs) They might as well have hoods on you. Neither one of them could see the front row. It was. (laughs) Did we? uh, That was weird about wrestling with Bob Armstrong. He'd go into that karate thing of his and start throwing those karate chops and I'm like, oh lord well you know he did that one night with Murdoch he was starting his comeback and he went into that karate pose and Murdoch reached out and just shook his hand <laughs> <That's Murdoch. laughs> kind of killed that gimmick <laughs> uh, yeah lumberjack matches oh I'll tell you another good one <clears throat> was where all the lumberjacks had a belt yep. Yep. Yeah, oh yeah those. 
Oh, I and God forbid, sometimes they would those, bring spectators. Those were called Canadian lumberjack matches. Yes, and that sometimes they would bring spectators in and say, here, you can have a belt and you can help. I saw oh, some guys yeah. with some real rumps in their back after some of those. Oh, geez, guys thought that was funny. Hmm. Uh, Did you ever see a California hippie match? No, I missed that one. Now, needless to say, that was a Mike Boyette invention. And what that one was, they took all the ropes off the ring, and they, they took uh, a roll of tape and marked out, marched, stepped out four feet from the ring apron and taped off all the way around the, the floor to where it was just about to the feet of the, the front row spectators. And that's you could, you could pin your man either in the ring or, or that far out of the ring with no ropes on the match, I mean, on the ring at all. That was his. That was his specialty. I don't know how to how to ring how to post stood up there. I don't know. Huh. But you know, obviously Boyette was was smoking some good stuff when he came up with that, and sure he, he must was. have shared it with whoever the Booker was to talk him into doing it. <laughs> <laughs> but they had quite a few of those in Mobile, the, the, the or the Gulf Coast territory, the hippie match. In fact, I have I got one of them on video with. Them. Mike and uh, Mickey Doyle working against Rip Tyler and Eddie Sullivan. Yeah, you had the yeah, Loser League Town matches. Right. Yeah. That's, a, yeah. that's another one. The haircut yeah. matches. Haircut uh, matches, I quit, yeah. I quit or submission matches where, uh, you know, falls didn't count. Yeah, uh, yeah, we did those. That was did a lot of those with Slater and wrestling, too. I'm telling you, the best one I ever saw out of all the gimmick matches I ever saw was the Hell's Kitchen street fight between Nick Kozak and Don Fargo, where the object was to, the guys would come to the ring fully dressed, and uh, the object was to tear your opponent's clothes off down to his uh, wrestling trunks, and naturally Fargo forgot to wear his that night, and he was... Yeah, accidentally on purpose. Yeah. yeah, accidentally on purpose. And the funny part was, and, and he didn't plan this part, was the uh, Alabama Boxing and Wrestling Commissioner, he was there all the time, but his he brought his wife for the first time ever. <coughs> and she's sitting front row ringside, and Fargo just got, gets his, his britches snatched off, and he's standing there in all his glory. And naturally, Fargo, he's not going to cover up and run to the ring. He decides to do the Fargo strut right there in front of her. Kelly and Lee Fields were standing in the back of the ring. Bob said he turned around and Lee was going out the back door and said, he's all yours. <laughs> oh, then a brass knuckles match. Remember those? Yeah. Yes. Brass yeah. Knuckles, yeah, with the tape fist match. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Rock Hunter was real big on those matches. Yep. Yeah, that was another Fargo specialty too. He had a, br- a brass knuckles trophy that he carried around with him everywhere he worked. Another gimmick match would have been working with Zulu, <laughs> <laughs> or his uh, yeah. fur fur cover, whichever. Just work with That's the fur cover. He was the weirdest joke I've ever been around. Ooh. Well, I'll just be glad he didn't hit you in the back of the head with a lead pipe like he did yeah. old Frankie Lane. 
What a piece of work he was. Zulu. Mm. But there again, going back to what we were talking about, everybody in the world knew he couldn't work, but he kept getting bookings because he looked good. That was the mystery to me. Even Eddie Graham used him. Brought him down to uh, Florida, shaved his head, put him in some white Abdullah the Butcher pants, and called him Ali Pasha and had uh, Bearcat Wright as his manager. Well, he looked good getting off the bus. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, then the bell, somebody, you know, the person that, was, that really should have been fired was whoever rung the bell because when they rung the bell, you know, he had to produce in, and that never happened. If you'd never rung the bell, you just could have looked at him. What was he from originally? Detroit. Detroit, I think, yeah. Yeah, he's from Detroit. You can blame the well, Sheik for him. I think Sheik got him in the business. Now, Sputnik told this story now. It's one of Sputnik's stories I'm just repeating. He was in a loser-leave-town match with a Sheik at Cobo Arena. And he told me he pulled inside Cobo Arena in his car and had a uh, U-Haul trailer behind him. <laughs> I wouldn't surprise and of course him. he lost. Well, he was just prepared. Yeah, he was getting ready, yeah. God. Well, you guys ever see a stretcher match? It's all those. Did they have the ambulance waiting outside the arena? I don't know. I, the only one, I never saw <laughs> one, but I know that because it, the only time, well, they had a, they had them. I did see one, too. I saw Duke Miller against Gorgeous George Jr., but that, that originated. The first one to ever do one of those in Mobile was uh, was Sputnik in the in the uh, early 60s. And of course, that was Ox Baker's big thing. He would bring a stretcher to the ring with him. And, of course, you know, they'd always load the guy up on it, and then the heel would go knock him off on it, uh, onto the ground, and stomp on him some more. Mask versus mask or mask versus hair. Yeah. That was the blow-off blow on the wrestling one and two was the mask versus hair. Tim Woods was not wearing his mask at the time. I tell you, one of the one of the, the slickest things was, uh, you know, Leon Baxter uh, was the wrestling pro in Mobile. He was our version of, of wrestling, too, uh, except he worked heel and babyface. He was swapping all the time. But he lost loser or you know, loser unmasked matches all the time. But he always wore his mask up under his mask, so he'd take a mask off and still have one up under it. The medics used to do that too. They would instead of uh, wearing another mask underneath, they'd take uh, tape. You know how how Renesto used to tape up his mustache to hide his mustache, so you wouldn't know you know he had a mustache right. underneath his mask. They yeah. would cover their whole face that way. So when they pulled their mask off, they'd still be covered up with all that gauze tape. So you still couldn't tell who it was. That'd make them. That'd make the fans even matter. It was. It was smart because they they brought them back the next week. Huh. You know they were big, and they they used to do it here in Georgia too. When when Gonzalez and Lordy were here as the medics, they would uh, switch up all the time because they looked so much alike, and of course they would dress alike. 
they're one of the stipulations their their opponents would ha- would have enough, and they'd go to the supposed commission or whatever, the NWA or whoever, and demand that one of them wear a black mask so they couldn't switch up. Well, they did that with the assassins here in Atlanta too, uh, you know, where they were wearing the black outfits and the black mask, and uh, I believe it was Jody who had to go to yellow yellow pants for a while. Uh, one of them did. But, you know, all, all the things we've mentioned, you know, if you've got the right two guys in there and, and really knew what they're doing, you could pull any of those things off. That's true. Mm-hmm. It all depends really on how the matches are manipulated to build up to it. Right. right. Yeah, it's just it's the whole thing. Right two guys in the right situation. You know, you mentioned Ted and Wayne. Right two guys, right situation, right booker, and it was magic. It, it it really was. I mean, it was it was just unbelievable. The stuff you could you could, you could do. And we had ladder matches in the Gulf Coast, but the, but it wasn't like they are now, where they have to you know they use the ladder as a weapon. I mean, the the idea there they'd hang something a belt or a title belt or a bag of money or something over the ring, and you know the first one able to set up the ladder and get up there and get it one. Do you know how steady a ladder is in a ring? I can imagine. It's like those, you know, Jared coming up with that crazy scaffold match. Who in the world would do that? Not me. I wouldn't do that either. I wouldn't have done that. I'm a ground floor man myself. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the dumbest thing I ever saw besides a scaffold match was uh, I had I've got it on uh, on video uh, Detroit a match from Detroit uh, that's called a shark cage match. It's a match with they take a, a cage about the size of the manager's cage we were talking about, set it up in the middle of the ring, and put two guys in it, and it's like two guys fighting in a phone booth. And they, and the guys that they that I saw in the match was Don Kent and uh, Jay Strongbow, which were not two small guys. So that's what it looked like. It looked like the, you squeezed the McGuire twins in a phone booth and told them to try and pin each other. They'd have to they'd have to like each other and able to do, do a match like <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> mm. I, I, well, I, the, I can't imagine that. The elimination tournament, you know, where you start out with. 12 guys and uh, you work it down to the final two at a, you know, uh, Griffin did that with wrestling too when he first time won the Georgia uh, heavyweight championship uh, and uh, so you you know you start out with the elimination and then of course folks come back every week to see uh, who's going to win that night and then who's going to be in the final match you know, we you mentioned the battle royal, what about the, the infamous two ring battle royal yeah yeah, having 20 guys in one ring one enough, let's put them in two. Well, wasn't yeah. the object that to get thrown out of one into the other one? You had to be thrown yeah. out of one into the other, and then uh, when you were thrown out of the second, you were eliminated. And another version of that was the last four guys in would, would become tag team partners against each other. And, yep. uh, and it could end up with a heel and a baby face being on the same team. 
Now, something that they used to do, and I'm sure they did it throughout the South, but, you know, some of these territories, you know, back in the in the 50s only had a handful of guys working for them, but they would start the, the night with a five, five-man battle roll. That was a, the first match. The first guy eliminated would become the referee for the rest of the matches that night. The next two guys out would meet each other later on in the semifinal, and then the last two guys would meet each other in the main event, the best two out of three. That's, that's getting a lot, of, a lot of matches out of five guys and not even having to have a referee. Well, it was not but, unusual uh, in the 60s in, in Georgia to have four guys on a card yep. and a referee, two singles yeah. and then a tag. And a tag. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that that was that was a typical spot show, even up in the early '80s. You know, I worked a lot of spot shows that were that way. You know, they there'd be six of us, had three prelim matches and then a six-man tag match or a battle royal at the end. Um, did you guys ever have uh, kamikaze elimination tag team matches? No. That no, well, I never was around one. They had. Uh, they brought uh, <clears throat> Ota and Coma, the Rising Suns, into uh, Mobile, and that was their specialty. was a was a kamikaze match, and what they how that worked was, it was like a regular tag team match, except it was best two out of three falls, and whenever a man lost a fall, he had to leave leave and go to the dressing room, and he couldn't be in the match anymore. So it would work its way down to two on one or whatever, but they expanded on that in Mobile, and they were doing eight man elimination matches where they had two four-man teams and the guy would lose a fall he'd have to leave and they his team would continue until all everybody was eliminated on one side and it always ended up with uh you know all four baby faces beating up on one heel they didn't hmm. do them often but they they did them quite a bit but that was one way to make the fans happy and it really wasn't a gimmick match but i used to love baby face matches or scientific matches as they used to call them I would love yeah, that. Yeah, eventually one guy would get pissed, and he'd start uh, playing subtle heel at least. Yeah. I mean, th- unless it was two baby faces and they went to a time limit draw. One of the best I've, I've, I ever saw, and, and in fact I've got it on videotape, is, uh, and both of these guys were long past their prime from 1976, Dick Dunn against Greg Peterson. And I think either Dunn went over or that went to a draw. I don't remember. But, uh... Well, <laughs> you talk about babyface matches and how they end and the things they do. Uh, <clears throat> I, I know I've told you all this, but they had a... Uh, there was a guy that uh, trained and started wrestling. He was from Warner Robins, Georgia. His name was Tracy Rivers. Tracy was a uh, was a uh, he had played uh, he had played in the Philadelphia Phillies uh, minor league system. He great athlete, but uh, he was one of those guys that had all the attributes. He had all the tools. Uh, it just never clicked between his ears. So Tom was going to make him a referee, or try to let him referee some. So uh, we were in Columbus on a Monday night, and we were having a one night tournament for the Georgia Junior Heavyweight Championship. Ted, Wayne, uh, 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 Bearcat, Bearcat Wilkerson, Wilkerson, Jim, I don't know. Uh, 
probably Jack the champ Armstrong. Was in it. I can't remember who all was there, but anyway, uh, before the matches start, Dick went out as a promoter and he picked four judges. He picked one on each side of the ring. He picked two black fans. He picked two white fans. And the deal was, if a match went to a time limit draw, the fans voted who they wanted to win. And if it if it was still a tie, then the referee made the, the deciding vote. Well, the the first match right out of the hole was Ted Oates and Bearcat Wilkerson. And they were going they were going to I think the matches were ten minute time limits because we had a bunch of matches because it was a tournament. Or the first round was ten minutes. So they went out went a ten minute ten minute draw. The last two minutes of the ten minutes Ted had the upper hand the whole 10 minutes because Ted was supposed to go over. So the fans are going to vote. Well, they voted along racial lines, two and two. So it fell to to poor Tracy to make the deciding vote. He stood in the corner and he had a had a red disc and a blue disc, you know, and you had to you were going to drop the one that was the winner. He looked at them two discs and he threw both of them down. And when he did, when he did, I happened to be standing next to Tom when he did it. Tom's eyes got biggest, biggest saucers, and uh, Dick, Dick was standing there, and they started laughing, and they went to the ring, and of course they, they worked it out, and they went five more minutes, and Ted caught him in a small package or something. But you know, just <clears throat> sometimes they don't end in a the draw, they, or they, they're not supposed to, but they do anyway because. Uh, Right. Yeah, he wouldn't make a decision. But I remember Tom telling him, he said, son, if you can't make a decision in an opening match, what are you going to do when you're in a main event and you have a hot one? <laughs> you know. <laughs> Just... So was that the end of his career? Uh, he re- he might have refereed the rest of that week, but he did not referee much. So. But there was a. It's like the time Les Thatcher was on with us, and he was talking about when he and uh, he and Kirby were working with the uh, Daltons down in Louisiana, and for some reason they got a mark to be the referee. And why, why in the world they did that? But anyway, they went to a they went to a uh, our Broadway, and you know naturally you know the match ends with Kirby and, and Thatcher with the upper hand, so. Roger screaming five more minutes. Well, this Mark don't know any better, so he gives them five more minutes. And they go again, and it runs out. And then Kirby says five more minutes. So the guy says, "Okay, do it again." You know, they, they, he does this three or four times. Finally, Thatcher tells Kirby, "If you ask for five more minutes one more time, it's going to be the Daltons and Thatcher beat up Kirby." <laughs> <laughs> Could be done, but 
And then up north, you had uh, the commission who controlled for a certain for, you know time there, who controlled the referees in their area. And that was a problem with the WWWF at one point, yep. uh, was that uh, the commission controlled the referees in certain towns. Yep. And, uh, you know, you, you didn't have the Garden same control over them. Because they had a, a referee named Gilberto Roman that was the worst, absolute worst referee I've ever seen in my life. And he was he was he worked for the New York State Athletic Commission, and he refereed matches in Madison Square Garden. It was obvious he wasn't smart. He was terrified of the guys. They'd take one step at him, and he he eyes would get big as saucers, and he'd run away. I mean, they had some guys like Terry uh, Terranova and and uh, Dick Worley and and Dick Crow who were smart to the business, but this guy Gilberto Roman Roman was not at all. You've ever seen old old WWF WWF tapes, Madison Square Garden shows? He's a little short Spanish guy, short and fat. Kind of looks like uh, Don Serrano, except 60 pounds heavier. <coughs> and uh, he's 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 an absolute terrible referee. That was another thing they'd do in Mobile. They'd, they'd have a thing uh, uh, where the referee, you know, not necessarily be a heel referee, but he'd, he'd screw up a match or something, and the next week uh, the baby face that he screwed over would want to challenge him either to a wrestling match or a boxing match. Right. Yeah, that was another gimmick was the heel referee. There have been some matches like that, and he ended up being brought back as uh, – as an opponent in many cases. In fact, somebody posted on uh, somewhere um, an Atlanta card from 67, and the main event was uh, Buddy Fuller against Leo Garibaldi. Uh-huh. Somebody asked, Somebody asked that must, I thought Leo was long retired. I said, well, Leo was, was a referee, and more than likely in 67 he was booking. And I said the deal yeah. was he probably screwed Buddy Fuller over in a, the match the previous week, and so they brought it back as a special challenge match between them. Yes, as a matter of fact, he uh, had a match on TV, I think, where Buddy Colt had his one hand tied behind his back and uh, still beat, I think, Garibaldi had to quit. Yeah, he came into Mobile in 74 and was kind of helping Kelly with the book and and he was his role was the special NWA troubleshooting referee and uh of course he got into a deal with Duke Miller and and was challenged to a match but then he said he couldn't get a his wrestling license and so he brought in Bobo Brazil and brought in Big Bad John and brought in people like that and then finally he worked a a deal with a handicap match with Miller against he and Bobo Brazil in Mobile. So Piquet, Piquet Russell kind of went out the window there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, gentlemen, I'm going to I'm gonna have to depart. All right. For parts unknown. I'm going to uh, alligator hunting. I was just going to say, <laughs> man, watch out for the gators. Yes, sir. All right. Have a great week, man. We'll talk to you next week. Okay, y'all take care. Bye-bye. Good night, man. All right. I I remember seeing Charlie Harbin
team with Ray Gunkel against Freddie Blassie in a handicap match when Harbin was refereeing full-time. That would have been 60, I don't know, 60, 69, 70. And my uncle told me that some years earlier, they had a handicap match with Blassie against Gunkel and Ed Caprell. Yeah, oh yeah, one-time deal. Yes, that 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 did happen. I that was of course when I was just watching wrestling on TV, and yep. I do remember that match being made. And uh, the next week they you know didn't mention much about it, so you really had to be there in order to uh, see it. But I do remember that match taking place. Uh, we've got uh, Greg Brown on the on the uh, line. Maybe he's got some ideas about some matches. Hello, Greg. Are you there? Hey, how you doing, guys? Hey, Greg. Uh, up, thanks, Greg? For, thanks for holding on. I know you've been been holding on for a while. Uh, we've been talking about gimmick matches tonight. You got any uh, stories on those? No, not really. I heard you guys talking about uh, Wayne Cowan and Ted Oates. Um, those were, they had great matches. But when I think about it, I was I always thought about you know, the, the matches that Jerry had with Billy Spears. Uh, mm-hmm. They had some great matches. Um, uh, against each other there in Columbus. I can remember one night in when uh, they had a match, and it, it turned out to be like a bloodbath. And at the end of the match, I always stood over by the babyface dressing room, and uh, Jerry had been brought back to the to the dressing room, and Kathy came up, and you know she was raised in the business, and it, it looked so real. She you know she came in, and I, she, she knocked on the dressing room door, and she said, "Is my husband okay?" But that's how really they made it look and how how, how good those matches were that they had against each other. Um, I look at this product today that we see now on TV that Vince is doing, and it's just horrible. Um, those guys that they got up there now, they bring them up for the next. They read this grass. They can't, can't leave their bodies. It's got to the point to where now he's even trying to hire some of the guys over 40 back. He's trying to get Kurt Angle to come back. He's trying to get Bill Goldberg to come back uh, because they just don't have it, you know. But back in the day, man, those matches that Ted and, and Wayne Cowan had and Jerry and Spears and just just the other, the other matches that was back in that era, uh, the matches that did you talking about Billy Spears. You you growing up in Dothan, did you ever see Gibson, Ricky Gibson and Billy Spears? Sure, sure. Oh, those two! Yeah. Those two! You could you could work them for a month or two, not have them work again for a year, and then hook them up, and they'd be right back. It's just it was like Dunn and, and Baxter, you know. Right. No matter right. no matter how much space you put between, that never got old. It never did. It never got old. Yeah, Spears, right. Spears and Soto was the same thing in Georgia. Yeah, that's right. You yeah. put those many, two. Many it didn't matter how. They could go, you know, six months and not see each other, and you put them together, and people would go crazy because they just had those kind of matches. Right. Or they could not even be in the same match, and uh, you know, working with somebody else, and one of them would come in and go ahead and get in the ring, you know, and start working with the guy. Right. Mm. One of the gimmick matches, and I've I've seen I just about every territory did them if. Uh, 
if the baby face beat the heel, then he got five minutes with the heels manager. I know they did that a lot with yes. Danny Jack Crawford right. here when he right. was with El Mongol. Uh, yeah, um, and Homer Odell, that happened also. And Strangler Odell, you know, he started out as a wrestler. I've got a, a match of his on, from Chicago in uh, the uh, An- International Amphitheater from uh, sometime in the late 50s. He's in a tag team match. It's him and I can't remember who his partner was, but he was talking about the, the two guys Jerry mentioned last week, the Bavarian boys, if I'm not mistaken. But he was Strangler Odell. Hmm. Huh. You and me never heard that. Let me, uh, while I got Greg on the phone, uh, I, did you get an email from me this week, Greg? You know what, Bob? I may have. I hadn't checked the email in a couple of days. No, just just uh, just a reminder. We're having a little get together Saturday. Uh, you're available okay. if you need some okay. directions or something. Hit me up tomorrow, and I'll I'll get them to you. Okay. Okay. You had a All birthday right. this week too, didn't you, Greg? I did. I had a birthday this past Monday. Sixty-two That's years what old. Oh, youngster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's older than me. I can respect my elders. <laughs> Not only that, you're, you're, you're still 38 years younger than Charlie Smith, Greg. So. Yeah. <laughs> Chronologically, anyway. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm sure we're leaving some matches out. I'm, I'm going through my mind. We did so many crazy things. I'm sure we're leaving some out, but they're just we oh we had the infamous falls count anywhere in the building. Yeah, yes, that's yeah. what I had written. Yeah. Those uh, were those were uh, those were always entertaining if you were a referee. The uh, the moon dogs like to do those in uh, up there in the Tennessee area. Yeah, in the concession stands. And, uh, yes, yes, yes. Jeez, what a! You've never seen that. You've never seen that video where they tore that concession stand up. That's worth right. the price of a ticket. And you know, the first time I heard a lights out match, and I had no idea. I said to myself, "Are they going to wrestle in the dark?" And uh, you know, just by the name, and of course, they turned off the lights for a second, and that was supposed to mean that some the sanctioned matches were over at that point, and then. Uh, you were unsanctioned. There may be a referee in the ring. They may not. But uh, that, that was, was the lights-out That was an match. Eddie Graham invention. Eddie Graham invented the lights-out matches. Um, did you guys ever have the combination boxing and wrestling tag team match where one member of a tag team on each side wore boxing gloves and they could either box or wrestle? Never saw uh, that one. They never did. saw they did that one either. They Mobile. They did those quite a bit in Mobile, and one one particular one I remember uh, came off of uh, an angle uh, when Danny Hodge was still junior heavyweight champion. He was working against Baxter quite a bit, the, the pro, and uh, they couldn't settle their differences, you know, and, and everything. So they had a boxing match. Well, the pro at the time was teaming with uh, Tony Gonzalez, the medic, so they they had a challenge match. It, it was uh, it was supposed to be the pro and the medic against Danny Hodge and Mike Boyette with Hodge and the pro wearing boxing gloves where the pro had chickened out and and convinced the medic to wear the boxing gloves instead. So 
And of course, how that always ended was the heel would always take his glove off and you know choke the guy or whatever and get disqualified. But Mobile had some interesting, some interesting stuff the, the Gulf Coast territory did. Well, just just sitting here thinking, I'll give you another one. And this this would never made sense to me as as a referee. They would have a match that they w- would be, and the stipulation was no disqualification. Now. All a referee technically could do was count one, two, three, you know, that's it. You can't disqualify the guy, or you can count him out of the ring, which was generally the finish on those deals. But, you know, the referee was was sort of rendered useless, and yet you had to continue trying to stay out of the way, and, you know, it was always it was always just seemed very awkward to me. Texas yeah, we would have matches where it was no disqualification, no time limit, no referee. The referee would be outside the ring, and all he was there for was to either count a guy out or call a submission. Other than that, he stayed outside on the floor. What about first blood match? You ever have seen one of those? That, uh, yeah, I saw those. Uh, the uh, New York had the time limit matches where they would the final match would be determined by whatever time the commission says the you know the, the you had to close was. down for the night for the night yeah and you'd build it up with the guys really going at it and look like the somebody was going to get a pin and then all of a sudden the bell would ring because the commissioner would say the time was uh up for the match you know for the night and that that's why if you ever look at old new york uh, cards, you know, match listings. They always had their main event in the middle of the, of the card, All right? Because so the, the twofold, especially Madison Square Garden, that way they could have a hot finish with their main event and announce the main event for the next week's card while there's still people in the building, so they'd buy their tickets before they left. Mm-hmm. That was one purpose, and then of course with the, you mentioned the curfew. The cur- curfew was always eleven o'clock. They didn't want to, you know, run out, run up against a curfew with their main event, so they'd always have uh, S.D. Jones against Baron Cicluna at the tail end of the match, or have some sort of eight-man tag match or something that, you know, kind of goofy, so it could uh, end in a curfew draw. I'm trying to think. Somewhere I read, not it may have been in Detroit. They had a a match. It's similar to a first blood match, but it was, but it was a the each guy had uh, had had a second during the match with a white handkerchief, and whichever mm-hmm. one's handkerchief got bloodiest uh, or you know totally covered with blood would be the. Uh, would be the winner. That was a weird thing. That, that sounded like something they do in Detroit, probably between Abdullah and Sheik. Mm. Texas had the best ones, though. Uh, loser washes a donkey match, and uh, loser takes a bath in the middle of the ring match. Those were usually in Houston. <laughs> Or Dallas, or wherever it was Bull Curry was. Bull Curry used to do all those crazy things. 
Loser had to dry, ride a donkey around the uh, around the uh, ring, around the arena, or whatever. Charlie Smith says they had a deal in Atlanta one time where I believe it was Gunkel and somebody, and the loser had to ride a donkey to the wrestling office from the auditorium or something. <laughs> and I forget who he said he wasn't Gunkel, but whoever it was, they had to ride the donkey, you know, to the to the wrestling office. Or ride it through town or something. One of Dusty Rhodes' last matches with uh, WCW, he had a kiss my ass match, and, and the loser of that was so he brought a donkey, and the loser <laughs> had to kiss the donkey. <laughs> that, oh, was probably, that, that, that was probably the better of the deal. That's the old, you ever hear the old Jerry Clower story where 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 the where Uncle Versi was out farming with the mule plowing and this gangster stopped and he was looking for somebody and he pulled a gun out and had Uncle Versi dancing a little bit and when he ran out of bullets Versi got his shotgun and said he told the guy he said have you ever kissed an old blue gummed mule right in the mouth and the old gangster said no sir but I've always wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, we we got about ten minutes left. Anything you guys want to plug? Well, just uh, uh, for any of the local guys that might be listening, we're having our little get together uh, Saturday, and uh, looking forward to seeing everybody. And those yeah, of you that uh, normally come know where it's at. And if you happen to be new to this and you'd like to come, hit me up on email tomorrow, and uh, you know just. Uh, part of the business or retired from the business or uh, a widow of someone from the business. You know, we kind of keep it to that because we're limited in our space. But uh, anyway, love to have you if, you, if you're in the neighborhood. What time would it be? You ought to try. Do what now? What time would it be? Eat lunch probably 12 to 12.30, somewhere in that neighborhood. And then we have no time limit. We're there till everybody leaves, so. Uh, we just kind of sit okay. around and shoot the bull, so love to have you, bud, if you can get there. Okay. Absolutely. I'll be making my comeback. First time I've been in probably a couple of years now that I'm able to get out been, and do I don't things. think it's been quite that long, Mike. No, he was there, to la- he was there a while back. Yeah, he, yeah I he guess, came. yeah. I guess I was because uh, I was there the the the, the weekend uh, you didn't make it, Jay, because you had uh, drill that uh, weekend. Guard drill that weekend, yeah. Yeah, that was that was last time, but I don't have to worry about uh, you know a, a a bag anymore. So I'm able to. I tell you what, I, I and, and this probably isn't interesting to anybody about because it's got nothing to do with the wrestling business. Last Sunday is probably the, the best day I've had since all this mess started. Uh, my big brother picked me up, and we went to church, and uh, I got to hear Bobby preach for the first time in over a year. And uh, my daughter and, and uh, her boyfriend picked me up from church, and we went to uh, see the new Jungle Book, which I thoroughly enjoyed and highly recommend. It's a good movie. And uh, from there we went to uh, Logan's Roadhouse. It's the first time I've eaten in a restaurant in over two years. Wow. 
And in all three all three situations, <clears throat> I did not sit in a wheelchair. I sat in the pew at church. I sat in the uh, theater seat in the theater, and I sat at the table in the restaurant. I right. almost felt human again. And uh, I tell you, it was it was an enjoyable day, and uh, it was good, to, especially to see everybody at church and everything. And, and you know, hopefully, uh, I told my daughter, uh, I'm planning if Bobby's willing. You know, at least once or twice a month for him to pick me up on Sunday mornings. I'm going to ride to church with him and, you know, have my kids pick me up and we'll go eat lunch. So uh, it's just with Bobby having to be there all day and into the evening service, that's just a bit of a long day for me. And I can't quite make it that long yet, but I'm building towards it. So, But I'm looking forward to this Saturday seeing everybody. Well, I'm happy to announce the Braves just tied it up. Uh, no, the Braves just took the lead, uh, four to three in the bottom well, of the I eighth. I can't watch it anymore because uh, I, I switched, uh, got a new cable provider. I got rid of AT and T finally, and I have got Charter. Well, Charter came out uh, Monday. Came the same day I called them about it. Came out, hooked up my. Uh, my internet, I went from two megabytes uh, per second to 60. So needless to say, I don't have any more internet issues. But when the guy was doing everything, he uh, he disconnected my satellite dish, and I didn't notice it because I was watching a, a Blu-ray when he was here. And then when he left, I, when I turned the Blu-ray off and tried to watch something on TV, I didn't have a signal. So I called him back. The guy, he he hadn't been gone 10 minutes, so I called Charter back, and I said, look, the guy, you know, he disconnected. I don't know why he did it, but, you know, he needs to come back and, and fix it. Oh, we'll get somebody, you know, back there. If it's not him, we'll have somebody call you. Well, I never did hear from him, so I called the, the local office again, and it was they were closed for the day. So I called the 800 number Charter, and I said, look, you know, I don't understand why he hooked it up. Is this a ploy on your, your part to try and get me to switch off Direct TV and come to charter? Oh no no no! I said, well then, he needs to come. Somebody needs to come fix this problem. Well, you need to call Direct TV. Mm-hmm. I said, well, you know, me being, you know, this being my first day as your customer, I'm not real happy right now. So anyway, I got nowhere with them. So I called Direct TV, and of course they were willing to do whatever, but they can't get out here till Monday. So I'm watching, you know stuff on Netflix or my own movies or stuff that I've, uh, you know, got on the, the DVR, but I haven't been able to watch the Braves, and they were on a winning streak. They had won five in a row, and then they lost one. They actually won six in a row, and then they lost yesterday. They but that's, they, that's right. They beat Miami. They're up 4-3 in the bottom of the eighth against the Mets here at home tonight. So, yeah. so. Another sweep would be nice. Yes, it would. Yes, it would. A lot of interesting uh, articles on the Braves' move in the Atlanta Journal this last couple of days. Some people happy about it. Some people very unhappy about it. Well, that's just such a congested area, and there's no yeah. parking there. It's just it doesn't seem smart to me. But you know, I don't own the Braves. I'm not. Well, they're building a pedestrian bridge whatever. across 285. They're going to want you to park over at the uh, Galleria Office Park. And, I mean, you're going to have to walk a quarter mile to a half mile uh, to the stadium. I mean, it's just crazy. I, for me, You know, with the problems I have walking any distance at all, I, I couldn't go if I wanted to. So, right. 
you know, and I, but I really don't want to. I, I just I think my days of going to sporting events are, are over. But uh, I just maybe some high school football. Well, I, but I'm planning on making uh, a Braves game before the end of this season because I want to go to at least one more game, you know, while they're still at the TED. But uh, yeah. it would be I don't ever see me going to to Cobb. I didn't I didn't like when I lived in in Cobb County, I didn't even like going to Cumberland Mall, so cuz the yeah. traffic was so bad. So, but anyway, but as bad as they've been playing unless they improve, you know, drastically by the end of the season, they're not going to have anybody show up anyway. Oh yeah, they'll have a, they'll have a lot of people the first year. People want to go see the stadium. Yeah. But, you know, after that, then who knows? So if they're, they're parking people over, are they going to be charging parking? Because it seems like that's a lot of revenue. I, I don't know. I really don't know. I don't know what hmm. they're going to do. And I don't know if the bridge is going to be completed in time for um, – I mean, their first game is uh, next April. Yeah. Well, that's where Charlie will set up his gimmick table, right there on that bridge. <laughs> yeah, on the bridge. Just coming and going. <laughs> well, guys, we are are just about out of time. Hopefully, Jay and, and Bobby. I know I'll see you guys Saturday, Greg. I hope to see you on Saturday. Hope I can make and, it. I'm uh, gonna do my best. Hope so too. All right. Well, guys, we'll uh, we'll get together next weekend and uh, see what kind of trouble we can get in. And hopefully, okay. Jerry won't have any more alligator issues this month or this week. <laughs> and, uh, we'll go from there. Sounds good, we'll Mike. I'll see you later. Ten Saturday morning. Okay. All right. Good night, everybody. everybody. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Good night, guys. We thank you for listening to this broadcast, a production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network. Stay tuned to GeorgiaWrestlingHistory.com for the latest information on upcoming events and more. As always, we thank you for your continued support. Thank you.